Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her gripping new book, Russian Hajj, Empire and the Pilgrimage to Mecca, published by Cornell University Press in 2015, Eileen Kane, Associate Professor of History at Connecticut College, presents a compelling narrative of the Russian Empire's patronage of the Hajj in the late 19th century. Through a careful study of a variety of sources, including previously unexplored archives and memoirs, Cain provides a vivid picture of the often arduous journey to the Hajj, of the benefits reaped and the challenges confronted by the Russian Empire in patronizing the Hajj, and of the relationship between the Hajj and global imperial politics. Wonderfully written, This book provides vital insights into Islam and the Russian Empire and a fascinating window into the relationship between the colonizers and the colonized in the context of the Russian Empire. Conceptually innovative, this book invites its readers to take seriously the importance of mobility in the construction of the transnational networks of travel and human encounters that define the Hajj at the cusp of modernity, networks in which non-Muslim powers also played a vital role. Russian Hajj will also make an excellent text for courses on Islam in Europe, the Hajj, Islam in modernity, and on religion and empire. Here now is my conversation with Professor Eileen Kane. Hello Eileen, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Well, uh, thank you so much Eileen for your time. Uh, Really looking forward to this conversation, such a wonderfully written uh, book about a topic that not uh, many of us know much about and I certainly learned a lot from it. So look forward to our conversation. And our first uh, question on new books in Islamic studies is always biographical. Uh, uh, And the question to you would be, uh, Eileen, could you share with us a bit about how you became a historian uh, interested in Islam and Muslim societies? What is the narrative behind your uh, being a scholar of this topic? Um, So I came to this through my interest in and study of Russia. Um, I went to, let's see, I started studying Russian when I was in high school. And my senior year in high school, 1990, we went to on an exchange to the Soviet Union. And then the following year, I guess within two years, when I was a, a sophomore in college, I studied abroad for a year in Moscow. And um, it was kind of a revelation to go there and realize that the Soviet Union was this multi-ethnic, multi-religious place because it was kind of taught to me. um, Traditionally, Russian history was taught as the history of Slavs and and Christians, Orthodox Christians. Um, So really, there was nothing in my history classes about uh, Muslims. And so going to the Soviet, what was still then the Soviet Union, and seeing all these different peoples was, was as I say, kind of a revelation. Um, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed then nine, in 1991. It disintegrated. And 
suddenly everyone was very aware of the diversity of the Soviet Union. And, and I would say the Muslim populations of the former Soviet Union and the former Russian Empire, the two were more or less the same um, land body, um, were the Muslim populations were perhaps especially conspicuous because there were 15 Soviet republics, which with the disintegration became 15 nation states, and six of them had Muslim majorities. And this was kind of a surprise to many people, again, because Russia had for so long, the Soviet Union too, had for so long been um, kind of seen as a, a place of Slavs or just ethnic Russians and Christians. So this this population had sort of been um, hidden in a way. I mean, certainly not to the small number of people who, who studied Muslims in Russia and the Soviet Union, but the numbers were very small. And as I say, in, in your standard history course, I mean, I was a freshman, my freshman year at, at Brown when I got there and took history. Um, and, you know, Throughout the four years I was there, it was really, you heard nothing about these populations. Um, so, and then I went and studied in Turkey after um, college. I went 95 to 97. I lived in Istanbul and I was learning Turkish and studying Muslim migration from the Russian to the Ottoman Empire. And then went to graduate school to continue. It just, so really it was through um, studying Russian and then going to what was still then the Soviet Union and discovering these populations in this place. And this was very surprising. So let us uh, begin, uh, Eileen, with the uh, uh, title of your book, which is uh, Russian Hajj. And I have to admit that uh, the first sentence of your book really astounded me, which says in the late 19th century, Russia took on a new role in the world, patron of the Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. I actually did not uh, know that. So could you... uh, uh, explain a bit what do you mean by Russian Hajj, this title, and, and perhaps through that, what are some of the key uh, objectives of this of this project? So the title, I, I love this question because I don't think anyone's ever asked me about the title, but the title was one that came to me early on. You know, when you're working on a project, you start to think um, of possible titles for whatever it is you're developing and the story that's starting to take shape. So this came to me early on and I never abandoned it. It just seemed to really um, fit what I was trying to do. Uh, It seemed to accomplish a couple of things. One is I hope when people see Russian Hajj, this should be counterintuitive um, because when most people today think of the Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, one of the five pillars of Islam, they think of it um, as an exclusively Muslim um, thing. Uh, many people know that um, the holy cities are closed to non-Muslims. Mecca and Medina today are located in Saudi Arabia. And so this this is not really um, two things that, that most people would, would put together, Russia and the Hajj. So I liked that it, it kind of captured the tensions and, and this paradox that are at the center of this story. Um, and I hoped that it would pique people's curiosity. I think a good title maybe will we'll, um, invite people to, to actually reach for the book and, and open it, but also capture what the, the story is essentially about. Um, and so, I mean, this is a, a great question. What do I mean by Russian Hajj? I, I mean, actually, it becomes, um, the Hajj becomes part of Russian history um, as a result of Russia expanding over centuries and conquering Muslim-majority lands. So Russia is unique among European um, countries in ruling Muslims as far back as the 15th century. So as this thing that's going to become the Russian Empire, um, 
You have the Principality of Muscovy. It starts to expand. The Mongol Empire has just collapsed, so it starts expanding into former Mongol lands. And um, as it pushes eastward, it's it's conquering a lot of territories where where Muslims live. So this starts in the 15th century. Um, and so this is in the book. I talk about the Hajj is uh, part of. Um, it's one of the Islamic inheritances that comes with Russia's conquest of lands um, where many Muslims live. And it becomes part of Russian history. And it also becomes this phenomenon. It's, of course, not just a, a religious ritual. Um, it's also a cross-border migratory phenomenon. So it becomes something that Russia must um, deal with. It must manage it. And in the book, I argue that they actually try to kind of tap into it and exploit it for their own their own purposes. But it's certainly, I guess, the um, sort of implicit argument of, of the title is that, that the Hajj becomes, and it still is today, part of um, Russian history. So actually, uh, that's, a, that's a good segue into the next uh, question, which is, uh, could you actually say a bit more about the, the central argument uh, of your book, and also, could you give us a sense of how does the argument that you assemble in this book in relation to, uh, you know, Russian imperialism, its relationship to Islam and so on, how does it revise our under- the previous scholarship or our current understandings of this region and Islam in Russia? Um, so I guess I would say two things. One is that the um, when I think about was thinking about who I was talking to in writing this book, the other scholars, the other the groups of scholars. Um, one is those we've had since the 1990s. I, you know, I mentioned this sudden discovery um, of Muslim populations in, in Russia and the former Soviet Union. So we've had a number of books. I think just this year, um, there were four or five that came out. So there, there are a number of scholars who are working on, on Muslim communities and on Islam in Russia. And the, the sort of standard narrative is that, um, and I should mention also that this was a very large population. Um, uh, Muslims were the, the second largest confessional population in the Russian Empire at its peak. So by 1900, um, Russian Empire territorially is at its peak. It's just um, conquered Central Asia and earlier in the, in the century, um, the Caucasus and going further back to the late 18th century, Crimea. Um, so by by 1900, Russia, the Russian Empire has more Muslim subjects than the neighboring Ottoman Empire. It has 20. So the standard narrative is that uh, Russia, of course, um, the, the newer work that we have says that, well, Russia was not always uh, this. The, the old work was kind of conflict driven. So Muslims and, and the state were, were always at odds with one another. Um, uh, Muslims were always resisting the state. And, and this newer scholarship looks more at, at how Russia tried to accommodate, to integrate. And it's not saying there was no conflict. It's not sort of erasing that earlier history, but it's saying that it's sort of focusing more on Russian efforts to um, integrate and accommodate these very large Muslim populations. And so the standard narrative is what the, there is agreement among historians, I would say, that this involved um, isolating Muslims from outside influences and kind of trying to domesticate Islam. So there's a lot of concern about Muslims not having um, too much contact with, with Muslims in other, in other parts of the world. And so what I'm saying in my book is, yes, they, they tried to do this, but also in this case that I'm looking at with the Hajj, they're actually expanding and facilitating contacts between Muslims and um, their uh, co-religionists in other parts of the world and, and their contact with, with other parts of the world. Um, 
So it's, it's, you know, this, I'm trying to sort of push back at this idea that Russia was constantly trying to, or it was very intent on cutting off its Muslims from, from the broader Muslim world, and that it was, was always afraid of the global dimensions of Islam. Um, you know, in this case, they're actually, as you said, the, the first sentence of my book is that they actually sponsored the Hajj. Um, and so this, so that's the first body of literature that I was sort of thinking that I was in dialogue with the scholars who write about how Russia managed Islam and what that meant. Um, and then there's another emerging scholarship on how really all of the colonial powers were involved in the Hajj because, um, by the late 19th, early 20th century, most of the Muslim world had been colonized by European powers. And so this meant also that most Muslims showing up in Mecca were colonial subjects. So it's not just the Russians, it's the French, it's the Dutch, it's the British. And we have a number of, of books that have been written um, on the British Hajj, the, the Dutch Hajj. Um, I have a colleague at UT Austin who's writing a book on the, on the French management of the Hajj and their colonies. Um, and but a lot of this is about how they're they're sponsor why are they sponsoring the Hajj? They're sponsoring it because they're they're afraid of it and they're afraid of um, primarily disease. Um, the spread of cholera is very much attached to the the growing numbers of Muslims making the Hajj. These large crowds, um, and also they're worried that you know and again this has to do with Mecca being closed to non-Muslims. There's this fear that that you know Muslims are meeting up in Mecca and what are they doing? They're they're conspiring to sort of overthrow. Um, empires. They're plotting these sort of anti-colonial revolts, which never actually happens. But um, so I'm trying to say that that there are there are peculiarities to the Russian case, which make it different from the French and Dutch and and British cases. But also, this is a case where Russia is actually um, they they don't really have a choice. They've they've um, conquered all these Muslim populations, and the Hajj is is part of um, central to increasingly central, actually, in the 19th century, because it becomes more possible to make the pilgrimage to an extent that's never before been true in history. Um, so they have to manage it. But they also say, well, by by sort of tapping into this, by sponsoring this, this is also a way for us, for example, to push into parts of the world where we have an interest maybe in, in expanding our trade. And so, you know, as I say in the book, it's not just a problem, but also um, they see it as an opportunity. So in this sense, I'm trying to add to and um, the literature on the colonial colonial involvement in the Hajj is not just defensive, at least in the Russian case. Now, one of the things that I found uh, particularly fascinating about this book was the narratives that you tell uh, and the sort of the picture that you present of what it was like to make the journey uh, for Hajj. And you make a very interesting point that, you know, today we think about the Hajj as, you know, a journey which primarily involves a uh, a, a, a trip on a on an aircraft uh, to Mecca and then, you know, mm-hmm. pilgrims performed the Hajj. But it was it had a very different kind of sensibility and a different kind of uh, a journey about the time in the time period that you are uh, examining that you've examined. And then you also look at some very interesting memoirs and interesting sources that you mobilize in uh, sketching a picture of what the Hajj was like. So could you share with us some highlights of that journey, what it was like for the pilgrims uh, from this region and what you learned from these, uh, from the examination of these uh, sources about uh, the journey for Hajj? Yeah. So that to me was the most, one of the most interesting things is um, that, you know, we think of the Hajj today, as you say, as a kind of point A to point B, you go on an airplane, not everybody, but, but generally flying um, often very long distance from one airport to another. And it was very different, of course, in the 19th um, and early 20th century, these, this period that I cover. And I would say uh, in that it was a multi-site 
itinerary. So it wasn't just from one place directly to the holy cities. For, for many people, it involved stops along the way in places to visit um, shrines um, or, you know, these amazing majestic stone mosques in Istanbul. So from the Russian Empire, you know, heading south, um, many Muslims would, you know, depending on um, their resources um, and their particular situation, um, would would they weren't just interested. And it took the Russian officials a while to figure this out, um, that they weren't simply interested in getting there as fast as they could, but stopping in Constantinople or Istanbul to visit, for example, Ayyub's tomb. Ayyub was a contemporary of the prophet. So this was um, one stop they would make, seeing the beautiful mosques that they'd, they'd heard about um, in Istanbul. Um, stopping also in Damascus and in Jerusalem. Others would stop in, in Cairo for Shiites coming from um, the Caucasus. Um, many would stop in Najaf and Karbala on their, on their way to incorporate into the book where you would see there'd be a kind of a, a picture of four different sites. So Mecca and Medina would be on there, but also Jerusalem and Damascus with, with indications of what to see around these places. This would be something that would be mass produced in the late 19th century that um, might hang on, on one's wall. But it was sort of a map of this multi-site itinerary. But I really got this from reading through um, memoirs by, by um, that they were mainly by Kazan Tatars, the ones that I found, where they would describe the journey. And these were intended not so much to uh, like travel accounts to entertain, but for other pilgrims who would come later. So they were very, very detailed about the geography and how many you know, it's this many um, chakaram from this place to this place. And when you get to Odessa, you want to avoid the, the mullah there because he rips everyone off. And so it was kind of a guidebook to be used, a sort of textual map. Um, but for my purposes, it was it was wonderful because it was very detailed on um, the, the routes that, that Muslims took. And this was a big, um, uh, you know, one of the main things I, I'm doing in the book is sort of uh, recreating the routes that that Muslims took to get from from Russian land to Mecca. Now, let me try to fold uh, two questions in one. One is, could you uh, share with our listeners how did Russia become a, a patron of the Hajj? Uh, how did that happen? And secondly, what are some of the organizational challenges that uh, the state had to confront in uh, patronizing the Hajj, and how did they go about confronting some of those challenges? Um, so they basically become a patron by um, creating institutions and um, new laws and introducing subsidies to support pilgrims in, in making the Hajj. And their, their goals are, and I should say that they, they're looking to other colonial powers for ideas. So they say, well, we should have, look at, you know, the, the French in Algeria are actually providing um, free steamship service for their pilgrims. Uh, maybe we should do that. So they're looking to other colonial, European colonial examples, but they're they're also looking to the Ottoman Empire and saying, well, the um, the Ottomans have these imperial Hajj caravans uh, that leave. At, at this point, the main ones were from Damascus and Cairo, um, where. They're sponsored by the Sultan and they provide security and they provide um, uh, food um, and they basically shepherd pilgrims safely to overland to, um, to Mecca. And so they're so they have this example in mind also, the Russians do, and saying, well, what do we need to do to support these people? And I should say the numbers are growing. Um 
it's about, you know, it's tens of thousands of people going through Russian ruled lands to get to Mecca by the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, so large numbers. And also, of course, this is happening at a set time of year. So everybody's going at the same time. This is something that um, I always have to remind, um, certainly those uh, scholars who don't work on Islam don't know this. So it's different from other pilgrimages in this sense that it happens at a set time. Um, uh, and so this is how they become uh, patron of the of, of the Hajj. It doesn't mean that Muslims always avail themselves of the consulates and um, lodging houses and you know subsidized steamship service. I mean, they're hoping that they'll go along set routes so they can keep track of them. So um, you know, pilgrims always have the option of reverting to other routes. So it doesn't mean that they're controlling or dictating their routes necessarily, but they become patron by providing. Uh, resources and and setting up what I call basically an infrastructure along the main um, routes that that pilgrims take, and of course this is tricky. So it's it's tricky for many reasons. You ask like, well, what does it mean to this this patronage, and how does it work out? Well, um, they have to balance. Well, we want to support them, but we also don't want to encourage more to go because they really don't want the numbers to rise. Um, we want to support Muslims in making the Hajj, but we also don't want to look like we're interfering in their religious rituals because we officially are tolerant of Islam. And they also don't want to, um, you know, there's a lot of concern right now about um, Muslim populations. There, there's ex- exaggerated, as it will turn out, concern of pan-Islamism and that Muslims under colonial rule are all going to bond together and they're going to overthrow um, the empire. So they're very, they're sort of walking a fine line here. And then just more in terms of, um, you know, the more mundane, how do we predict how many are going to go? How do we predict which routes they're going to take? What if we run out of, of um, food in the lodging house that they set up in Odessa? Um, and then there's also this problem of um, they set up consulates along the major routes that pilgrims are taking, but they, they, they start finding that many destitute pilgrims are showing up and saying, we need money to make the rest of the, the trip to, to Mecca. And so they say, and all of the colonial powers, by the way, are, are dealing with this. They, they're saying, it seems like word is spreading that you don't need money to go on the Hajj because if you just show up at a European consulate and ask for money, they'll give it to you. So they're trying, there's this fear, and I, I think they were right about this, I think, that um, that word was kind of spreading that that you could get around. It's expensive to go travel thousands of miles to go from Central Asia to Mecca. And so the, the issue of resources and how much money they're spending on this. And then in the Russian case, there's also the problem of Russia is officially um, an Orthodox empire, Orthodox Christian. And the Orthodox Church has a privileged place in the empire. So they're very concerned also with being too public about supporting the Hajj, because then this is going to call into question um, their support for orthodoxy, and they rely on the Orthodox Church a lot as a support for the empire. So it's it's very tricky. It's not straightforward. And they, um, you know, one of the reasons I say in the book that it's kind of, I think other scholars have missed this history is that there's, there's, there's sort of semi-secret about it. And so this means that documents about this are kind of scattered and buried in different files um, in the archives, which means that when you walk into the archives, the subject is not obvious. So let's uh, continue with the theme that uh, you already brought up uh, just now, which is the relationship between the Russian patronage of the Hajj and its internal politics and also its politics in relation to its also its external politics with other global powers and so on. Uh, so could you speak a bit more about the political dynamics of this uh, of this patronage, how did it relate to sort of the internal debates that were going on within the empire about how it should 
you know, interact and treat its uh, Muslim population, how it saw itself in relation to other uh, global powers uh, in the region and beyond. And some of this you already have touched on, but I was uh, wondering if you could further uh, elaborate a bit on this point, which also is a significant uh, uh, trajectory of inquiry uh, towards the latter half of your book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that um, there is a tendency among historians of Russia to, when they talk about how did Russia manage and govern its Muslim populations, is to take a regional approach and to say, okay, um, in Central Asia, how did they do this? In the Caucasus, how did they do this? And one of the nice things about um, you know looking at a mobility network is you realize oh, wait, this is the um, late 19th century when there's a mobility revolution going on around the world. And by this, I mean, um, basically anywhere that the Europeans are um, are colonizing, they're bringing railroads and steamship. So people are moving around. And, and this includes, of course, everyone in the Russian Empire. It doesn't mean everyone's moving, but this, you know, mobility becomes, they, they build an empire-wide um, train railroad network over the second half of the 19th century very quickly. Um, and so, you know, the argument I make in the book is that uh, governing Muslim populations, you know, just like other populations, but um, this is the one I'm focused on here, is it, it, it involves not just um, people aren't staying in place to an extent that they were before. So governing Muslim populations, especially this particular population that has as, as one of its central um, religious rituals, this long distance pilgrimage, um, necessarily involves um, it, it, it's it, governing Muslims does not is not contained within a particular region or even within the borders of the empire. So I see their sponsorship of the Hajj as part of this effort also to um, govern and integrate Muslim populations. So if if they're having a lot of trouble. Um, you know, many people got robbed or, um, you know, they, they complained about not having enough resources along the way uh, of support to to make it all the way to Mecca. So this is one way of, of saying, that, well, we support our Muslim populations um, because we just opened a, a consulate in Jeddah. Um, they do this in the in the 1890s. And the only reason for them to be in Jeddah is because of these, these their, their Muslim populations traveling um, to Mecca. So. So I, I see the opening of the Jeddah Consulate as part of integrating Muslim populations that they've just conquered in Central Asia. So this is not a project that's contained within particular regions or even within um, the borders of the empire because we're living. This is a period when people are moving around to an unprecedented degree. Um, and you know this question about um, what this has to do with Russia's competition with. Um, imperial rivalries, um, competition with other empires in the world. One of the most interesting things is, I thought, was that you see um, that, you know, for example, Hajj pilgrims coming from Xinjiang in in, uh, the Qing Empire and from um, Afghanistan, they are... Um, the British, the Russians, and the Ottomans all kind of compete to say, well, they, we should be protecting them because they don't have consular representation in, in the Ottoman Empire. And so to me, this is really interesting because we think about, um, you know, if you think about global European imperial rivalries, um, you don't often think about um, the great powers competing over Muslim populations. There's a, there's a literature um, that's well known about how in the Ottoman Empire, the um, different European empires all competed to claim to protect different Christian populations and to some extent Jewish populations. But this idea, like seeing um, European uh, empires and 
the Ottoman Empire competing to claim authority over Muslim populations. I think that's an interesting and missing piece of um, the story of, of global European imperialism. Now, let's uh, let's uh, end, uh, Eileen, with this point, actually, that you were just bringing up. Uh, and uh, uh, let's talk a bit about a larger conceptual intervention that this book makes, which I think is a very fascinating and important intervention that you also talk about towards uh, in your conclusion, actually, to this book. Uh, how does your book refine and reorient our understanding of the uh, history of Islam in Europe, this interaction of this you know, Islam in Europe and the relationship between Muslim populations and, and, and Europe. Uh, you make a very interesting case about ways in which your book uh, makes us rethink some of the assumptions that uh, have become commonplace in relation to this relationship. Could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, I guess the most basic point is that Islam has a long history in Europe that is often forgotten today. Um there's a sense, I think many people think of Islam in Europe today as a recent foreign import, um, sort of post-World War II, a result of decolonization and immigration, a lot of it labor uh, migration to Europe after um, the end of World War II. And that's, you know, Russia is a great case to look at, sort of um, give us more of a historical perspective. Um, you know, Islam has a much longer history. I mean, it, there was in the 8th through the 15th century in Spain um, on one end of Europe. And then on the other end of Europe, Russia, as I mentioned, um, has had Muslim populations. Russia today still is, um, it's about 10 to 15 percent um, Muslim, um, which is something that most people don't know. I should say also that in the press, I think when we, when there are articles about Islam in Europe, they usually mean Germany, France, and the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, most of us who work on Europe would agree that that is not Europe. Um, Europe is much bigger than that. So I think the thinking of the Russian case is, is a way of sort of pushing against this idea that, that Islam doesn't really belong in Europe. Um, it's sort of something that doesn't quite fit in Europe and that it's this sort of recent foreign import. Um, that's, that's, that's not right. And of course, the, um, um, the Europe that we have after um, you know, by 1945 is a Europe that has been ethnically cleansed. Um, and, you know, starting in, you know, from the 15th century, to the 20th century, you have episodes of ethnic cleansing and religious expulsions that give us Europe as, as, as we know it um, eventually um, by the late 20th century. So there's a longer history that is, is not very well known today. Um, and I think my hope is that this book um, helps us to, to get at some of this his, history and, and raise some questions about, um, uh, you know, what, what we've forgotten and what we don't keep in mind today. So as we're coming uh, to the end of our time, Eileen, uh, could you share with us a bit about uh, what are you working on these days? What could be some of the things that uh, we could anticipate reading from you and learning from you in the uh, coming months and years? Yeah, I guess very broadly, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between Russia slash USSR um, and the Middle East in the 20th century. So I, I feel like with this book, I've kind of um, hopefully opened up, uh, you know, by tracking um, and reconstructing the patterns and, and roots of um, the Hajj uh, between the Russian Empire and the and Ottoman Arab lands um, made very clear that there was, there were, was this movement, this, this um, tradition of, of contact and, and exchange. Um, and also, um, 
I, I get so very interested. And so they set up, Russia sets up this whole consular network throughout the, the Ottoman and Arab world, and the Soviets then um, inherit that. So right now what I'm really interested in is we, you know, we often think of uh, Soviet connections to the Middle East, again, as a post-World War II phenomenon, as a Cold War phenomenon, but they were built upon um, this earlier history. And they, you know, the Soviets took over this consular network that the the, the czarist regime set up largely along um, throughout the Ottoman Arab world, largely along along Hajj routes. And so I'm interested in how this, you know, by by reconstructing this these these connections and the infrastructure that Russia built. Now, so what comes next in the 20th century? And I guess more broadly, um, you know, to go back to the very beginning, I mentioned I sort of got into all of this with the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which for Russian historians it kind of freed us up. Or, you know, I was a budding historian then, so I didn't see all this clearly. But for, you know, um, historians, you know, sort of to, to have the Soviet Union collapse, it sort of freed them up to think about the Soviet framework was gone. So it, it kind of freed them up to think about Russia and the Soviet Union um, in relation to to other parts of the world. And um, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, it's been over um, 20 years since the Soviet collapse, and we still think of Russia and the Middle East as as these two separate things. And so, if I, you know, I don't know exactly what I'm what my next project will be, but it's going to be something that tries to bridge um, these two areas and and sort of overcome the area studies boundaries that still make it very hard to put them together. Russian Hajj, Empire and the Pilgrimage to Mecca by Professor Eileen Kane, published by Cornell University Press in 2015. Well, uh, thank you so much, Eileen, for such a wonderful and rich uh, book, which I think will uh, provoke some very interesting conversation uh, in multiple fields and uh, for our conversation today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Eileen Kane about her book, The Russian Hajj. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please also join us next time for another new conversation, another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, be well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic Studies. <laughs>